the media landscape in America is busted. Americans are on to the omissions, the half-truths, and the outright lies being propagated against we, the people. Your host, Tom Harris, will bring you the other side of the story. When reporting about climate change, the media rarely tells us about the opinion of scientists who take a truly long time frame perspective. I'm talking about thousands and even millions or billions of years. Yet it is only if we look at geologic history that we're able to understand if what we're seeing today is in any way unusual. My guest today, Dr. Ian Clark, Emeritus Professor in the Department of Earths and Environmental Sciences at the University of Ottawa, Canada, specializes in research into how environment has changed over millennia and even longer. We're going to discuss how we're able to determine environmental conditions long before people were actually recording temperature, carbon dioxide, sea level, ice conditions, and other environmental variables that we actively measure today. Dr. Clark has a bachelor and master's of science degrees from University Waterloo, actually Waterloo University, and a doctorate in science from what is now called Université Paris-Saclay. How do you pronounce that, Ian? Well, uh, we call it Paris-Sud. Saclay is the the village. There's a few names for it, but the University of Paris-Sud à Saclay. Okay, great. Ian's been teaching and researching in the fields of paleoclimatology, geochemistry, and hydrogeology for more than 40 years and has published over 200 peer-reviewed papers and several books on these topics. Dr. Clark's current research interests include studying the effects of permafrost thawing on groundwater quality and quantity in the Arctic, investigating the sources and fate of methane in natural and contaminated waters, and applying environmental isotopes to trace groundwater contamination in agricultural regions. So welcome to the show, Ian. Thank you very much, Tom. Glad to be here. Yeah, great. Now, at Ottawa, you you were the director of what's now called the Yanvisor Stable Isotope Laboratory at Ottawa U for many years. What sort of work did you do at the lab? Well, the Stable Isotope Lab focuses on uh, what we call environmental isotopes. And these are, uh, to give a little bit of science background to it, uh, elements with a slightly different weight, like oxygen has uh, oxygen 18, which is a little bit heavier. We use them as tracers in the, of the environment, uh, water, environmental systems, water, nutrients, uh, carbon as well. And the isotope lab has a specialty in analyzing those. It's not easy to do. We have very specialized equipment, but it's one of the best in the world and uh, renowned for uh, the analysis of these isotopes in environmental systems. Right. So a lot of people may not know what a stable isotope actually is. First of all, what is an isotope in general? <laughs> well, isotopes uh, are simply elements that have two, a, an extra neutron or two, or sometimes less than a normal complement. And uh, while adding a, a neutron or two doesn't change the element, it does change its mass. And if you add too many or take too many away, then that element can become unstable and we get radioisotopes. But what we measure in the Hatch Lab are stable isotopes, those which can ha have an extra neutron or two, like carbon can have carbon-13, which makes it uh, a little bit heavier than carbon-12. 
oxygen 18, which has two extra neutrons, a little bit heavier than carbon 16, uh, sorry, oxygen 16. So these are uh, routine, uh, routine measurements uh, of isotopes found throughout nature. The hydrological system, carbon system, CO2, all have a very small number of these uh, or concentration of these stable isotopes. Yeah. So let's take oxygen, for example. Normally it has eight protons and that defines it as oxygen, right? Correct. Yeah. And so when you have eight neutrons, you have normal oxygen O16. But when you have an extra two neutrons, you have O18. Is that right? That's exactly it. Yeah, and it's heavier. Now, that helps you determine temperature, right, over long time frames. What we find is in uh, in the hydrological cycle, which can be observed today, we can take water samples, ocean water, uh, ice, uh, water vapor even. And in that cycle, what we find is that these iso the stable isotopes, the heavy isotopes, uh, become more concentrated or less concentrated. And the driving uh, parameter that controls where these isotopes get partitioned is temperature, the key climate variable. So we can use these isotopes to reconstruct uh, climate temperature, temperature of climate in uh, materials that have been preserved, like ice right. carbonate material, like stalagmites and stalactites which have uh, uh, carbonate, so there's oxygen in that, there's carbon in that, and we can uh, we can come up with uh, past climates with these measurements of, of stable isotope concentrations. I understand it works sort of like this, and maybe you can tell from a layman's perspective, from my perspective, you know, because when it comes to geoscience, I'm certainly a layman, but I understand it works sort of like this. Ordinarily, during periods between glacial periods or ice, massive long ice house periods, the H2O16 preferentially evaporates because it's lighter than H2O18. However, it falls on the ground and it drains back into the ocean. So the concentration of H2O to H2O, H2O18 to 16 would stay about the same. But during glacial periods, it falls on the land and freezes and stays there. And so you have an increasing concentration of O18 to O16 in the water. Am I right so far? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a, a point that I I labor on to try and teach my undergraduate students. So you've yeah. got Okay, and then you have seashells, you know, the sea creatures who make their shells out of the environment, which, of course, then would be concentrated in O18 in comparison with warm periods. And so when you analyze the isotopes in the fossilized seashells, you can see when there was a greater concentration of O18, which would be cold periods. Do I have that right, too? Yeah. <laughs> when, we, when we measure those marine sediments and the shells in those marine sediments, usually tiny, tiny little shells, foraminifera, when we get an increase in O18, it means that uh, ice on land dominate. We had a lot of ice on land, so a lot of glaciers, continental glaciers, and lower sea level. So that's okay. that's an indication of. Yeah, that's interesting. So you were saying besides fossilized seashells, there's other indicators. Do Is the fossilized seashells, seashells the one that you use to go back to um, a half a billion years ago? When we go back to uh, throughout the Phanerozoic, ever since we've had 
uh, Shelley material retained. Yes, it's, it's, it, we're looking at uh, that effect that the, the oceans become concentrated in oxygen 18 because we have colder temperatures and a lot of uh, glaciation. But that works also over uh, thousands of years during the ice ages. We see these variations. We can go back to uh, you know million years, two, two million years in soft ocean sediments, which are easy to collect. Oh. And the material is very well preserved. If we're going back oh, wow. over 600 million years over geological time, deep, deep time, then we're we're looking at rock formations uh, on land where you know we had oceans in the past. Uh, up here we have the Michigan Basin and um, Anticosti Island. Lots of these formations where where we go and and walk up a cliff, climb up a cliff, and collect uh, rock, uh, rocks with with shells in them. Analyze those absolutely. Yeah. So what do you do? You grind them up and you put them into some sort of spectral analyzer. How does that work? Well, the uh, instruments we use to analyze stable isotopes are called gas source mass spectrometers. When you take a shell, that's not a gas. So we have to yeah. convert our material to a gas. And what we do is take the shelling material and make sure it's you know very uh, pristine, not unaltered. And we uh, grind it up, as you say, and then we dissolve it with acid uh, under uh, vacuum conditions. And we take when we dissolve it with acid that produces CO2 and the carbon dioxide is the gas that we use. And it has now preserved the O18 record uh, from the shell and remembering that the shell had preserved the O18 record from the ocean water that it precipitated from that the animal built its shell from. So we're now measuring CO2, which has a, a record of the oxygen 18 in that ocean way back in geological time. Wow, that's so cool. And you can go back as far as there were, you know, hard shell sea creatures, which I understand was what, almost 600 million years? Yes, we can go back. Yeah. Uh, to about 600, almost 600 million years for that. That's incredible. When you want to go back even further, can you? Can you determine temperatures before that in any way? Much more, uh, with much more difficulty, uh, we can look at uh, iron, banded iron formations and things like that. But these records are uh, much more difficult to establish, uh, not very well. Rock itself can have a record, like clay minerals and things like that, can have a record of uh, past meteorological conditions, but the resolution uh, precision is, 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 is not anything like what we get when we analyze sediments. You go back prior to you know massive sediments like that in the Precambrian, it's usually uh, metamorphosed rock and, and altered, but we have many sections of rock, sedimentary rock, which have and preserve these shells very well, and, and over the past, what we call the Phanerozoic. So the Phanerozoic is, is really the, 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 the broad period of time when we have zoology, zoic for zoo, so animal life. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, you know, that sort of ties into a paper that I read in 2003, which was called Celestial Driver of Phanerozoic Climate, written by Professor Nir Shaviv of the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, and your colleague, Jan Weiser, uh, who was, of course, a professor a uh, very leading professor at Ottawa U. Now, if I understand rightly, 
The Phanerozoic is the geologic era that covers the time period from 600 million years ago to today. Is that right? Right. Yeah. Okay. Now, this paper, again, I'm going to put a link to it, as well as the major graph that I sent to you, and you know, of course, very well. That paper radically changed my perspective of climate change, especially when I looked at this graph, because it shows how galactic cosmic rays, which I understand are really particles, <laughs> they're high energy particles from nearby supernovas, they seem to correlate with temperature over vast periods of time, tens of millions of years. What do you think about this paper, and why is it so important? I'm so glad you brought this up, Tom, because I was so impressed by this paper, and this is pure scientific serendipity. Uh, I, I, I knew Yan when he had published his uh, 2001 paper on uh, Phanerozoic temperatures, and he had done with that with exactly what we've been talking about, the use of isotopes in shells over this period. And it was a remarkable paper. And all he was showing is that, wow, over these 600 million years, the Earth has gone through ice house and hot house phases with about a 100 million year frequency. And that went out. Yeah. Very interesting. Isn't that nice? Uh, we've had the, but what's driving it, you know, what's causing it, very difficult to say, speculation. But then near Shaviv had almost sim simultaneously published a paper on the cosmic ray flux impinging on our solar system, not just Earth, but our entire solar system. And uh, over the fan, over a similar period of time, he'd done this by measuring uh, isotopes, uh, radiogenic isotopes in meteorites. And, and what he found was that depending on uh, the age of the meteorite, that had more or less of a record of this cosmic ray flux. And he drew a curve. And that's, when we look at that diagram, that's the top curve. Uh, and when Nier and Yan discovered each other's works, they got together and one chart virtually fell on top of the other, aligned beautifully. And so now we've got not just the uh, effect, which was the hothouse, uh, ice house temperature record that Yan had created, but the cause, which was the cosmic ray flux. So you could ask, well, what's the mechanism there? So we've got cosmic rays. How's that affecting climate? Well, early days back then in the discovery that cosmic rays actually influence cloudiness on the planet. And so if we increase cos the cosmic rays impinging on Earth and our atmosphere, we increase the nucleation or the concentration of cloud nucleating particles. And so we have a cloudier Earth. And a cloudier Earth means a colder Earth and greater opportunity for ice sheets to advance and, and make the record that we see in these marine sediments because greater glaciation on Earth, then we have uh, this record in ocean sediments. And so now we've got cause, the cosmic ray flux, which was found to be due to the our solar system's migration through the spiral arms of our Milky Way galaxy because it be, it came into closer contact with uh, cosmic rays from supernova or fewer cosmic rays when we're between spiral arms. And so and, and that frequency matches what Nier had found in his impingement uh, uh, record. 
and matches beautifully with Jan's climate record. So we've got now climate changing because of our uh, celestial interactions with with wow. And don't they call that cosmoclimatology? <laughs> That's a great name for it. I yeah. was impressed. And Jan, I, I will say, <laughs> a brilliant geoscientist, Canada's leading geoscientist in terms of citations and renown. And uh, he uh, just thinks outside the box. He, yeah. He's the one who really showed me the importance of the, the hydrological cycle on climate rather than the carbon cycle. Yeah. Yeah. I've met Yan a few times and he's a very modest man. You'd never guess that he was one of the leading experts in the world. So if I understand correctly, as the sun and our solar system and nearby stars go through an arm of the galaxy, which is slightly more dense, slightly stars are closer together slightly, um, we get more galactic cosmic rays. So we have more more clouds. And so the Earth is colder. And as people will see when this interview goes to podcast, I'll put up the actual graph. You can see exactly that, that when CO2 is, sorry, when cosmic rays are high, no relationship to CO2. When cosmic rays are high, temperatures are low. And that must have really blown them away when they put their curves over each other and said, whoa, it's the same period. (laughs) <laughs> I, I, it was unbelievable. I was not witness to the actual event when they discovered each other's works, but I was in the realm and, and talked to Yen within days of that. He was telling me about it. We used to go to the gym together and chat. Oh, yeah. And, stuff. and uh, he was, you know, very excited about it. I was blown away. I just couldn't believe uh, such uh, clever science. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really exciting, actually. And now the question then, of course, environmental activists will say, oh, you're talking about a half a billion years. What does that have to do with temperature today? OK, well, first of all, it proved that cosmic rays do drive climate on long time frame perspectives. But how does it relate to climate over the last few centuries? Well, we're not uh, galloping through the spiral arms of the galaxy very quickly, so we can't use this as an explanation for variable climate on uh, you know decades to uh, millennial scale. But uh, we do have another mechanism that can change the cosmic ray flux, and that's solar activity. So as, as everybody knows, our geomagnetosphere and the solar heliomagnetosphere both protect us from these damaging cosmic rays. We really don't want co- cosmic rays because uh, they're DNA altering and uh, you know, high energy interactions with our uh, cells and, and DNA. It's not a good thing. But um, what we find is that protection wanes and waxes over time, depending on solar cycles. And we can even see it on the 11 year uh, solar cycle, but uh, there are other solar cycles that we we can uh, uh, change the solar activity, and we could you know measure changes in the cosmic ray flux. So we do mm-hmm. have this variability going on, and and that's been calibrated back over several hundred years, ever since we started collecting a sunspot record with any uh, ver- veracity, because the sunspot record is a good record of solar activity, and we find that the sunspot record correlates very nicely with climate events and with um, uh, other uh, cosmic ray-driven processes. Yeah. So if I understand rightly, Yan's work was important, along with Nir Shaviv, because it showed that galactic cosmic rays 
influence climate. Okay, so we got that as a given. Then I believe it was Svensmark that came along and he said, yeah, and the sun varies the amount, its activity varies the amount of galactic cosmic rays coming into the Earth's atmosphere. So you're seeing a much shorter cycle of variation in cosmic rays, which would then lead to temperature change on Earth in a much shorter period. Is that right? That's my understanding as well. Of course, yeah. you know, this is not my research. But I, I taught courses in this area, and I, I obviously read up what everything I needed to read about uh, these processes in, in order to teach. And and that's that's correct. That's that's the science as we know it. Of yeah. The influence of, uh, shall we say, uh, heliomagnetospheric controls on cosmic ray fluxes and therefore on climate. Mm -hmm. uh, several experiments have been pursued since this broke. Svensmark was very influential, showing... Uh, this link, and and very important to Yan's work, but Sensmark was showing it for sh shorter periods of time. And the um, the cloud experiment at the CERN laboratory in Europe was undertaken to see if they, you know, because CERN is an accelerator uh, cyclotron to produce high energy particles. Well, they did that to see if they could produce these cloud nucleating particles and and it was very successful they showed that with these high energy particles under very controlled experimental conditions indeed they can produce clouds well they produce cloud forming particles and uh, and that was you know another step in our understanding of the influence of the sun on earth's climate don't forget yeah. the sun you know you go outside it's sunny day it's warm so that sensible heat um, solar radiation. That's one element. And that doesn't vary. We used to call that the solar constant. Well, it's not constant, but it's not hugely changing. And we can't explain all the temperature changes, the climate changes that we see with that variation in, in the solar output. But when we start to look at the magnetosphere, the, the heliomagnetosphere and its influence on, cos on cosmic rays and cloudiness, that is a much more powerful link because oh, if wow. you change cloudiness by about 1%, typically the earth is about 33% cloudy, 30 to 33% cloudy. If we change that by a percent, that is far more warming or cooling imparted on our planet than all the warming that we attribute to CO2. That mm. Scientists with the IPCC attribute to CO2. So we can do, redo, or undo all the CO2 warming you want by changing cloudiness by a, a percent. And that's easily done with these variabilities in uh, solar output. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I saw a film called The Cloud Mystery. And I don't know how this particular scientist or sorry, producer knew that Svensmark was going to come up with an exciting discovery, but he followed the history of Svensmark's work for, for a 10-year period. In fact, I would say the cloud mystery, and I'll, I'll include a link to it under the podcast because I offer references, you know, right under the podcast. Um, that is, to my, you know, in my opinion, that is the, the best science film ever produced because what Lars Mort Mortensen, I think his name was, but anyway, the producer... He followed Svensmark's work for 10 years and showed how he started out in the scientific community. We're saying, oh, that's nonsense. They were being rude to him and dismissing him, <laughs> telling, telling him to shut up at presentations. And at one point, it was funny in the film, 
Svensmark says, Henrik Svensmark from, I, be, I believe it's Copenhagen, right? Yes. He says at one point that he wasn't going to shave until he got the paper published. <laughs> His beard got longer and longer during the film. And finally, at the end, they're popping champagne and he's shaving and he's so happy. And so I think it's a wonderful film. It's wonderful for students, especially, to see how real science works and how sometimes you have to push against the status quo to even get your work published. You know, so so if I understand rightly, then the sun increases in output during a cycle, you know, as you say, it's first of all, the 11 year short cycle, which is like a tenth of a percent, not very much, but the longer cycles where you have bigger amplitude. So you get more or less solar input, which is directly heating the earth. But it's influence on. And in fact, as far as I can see, it's a positive feedback. So you have the sun increasing because of extra solar activity. So the earth warms a little bit. But that helps protect the Earth from galactic cosmic rays, right. meaning you have meaning you have less clouds, and so it's a positive feedback. It's an amplifier of the original solar rise. We have a sunnier planet. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You know, it's funny. One paper I read said that that can actually have caused most of the warming of the last century. Do you think that's an exaggeration? In fact, if you if you know, if we look back in the pre-industrial period over the what we call the Holocene, the period of relatively stable climate post-glaciation, uh, we're not out of the ice ages, but uh, we're out of the last glaciation. And uh, so we've had a relatively stable climate, which has engendered uh, civilization over you know, mm -hmm. 10,000 years. But yeah. it's been a bumpy ride because we've had cold periods and warm periods. And we go back a thousand years, we had the medieval warm period where uh, Europe was doing very well, thank you. Great agriculture and uh, a lot of expansion of uh, and, and development of civilization. And then prior to that, uh, we had the uh, Roman warm period about 2,000 years ago. So roughly every thousand years ago, there, there's been these changes in climate. And that's certainly not driven by uh, CO2. Uh, what we find is actually CO2 is following that, but but not driving it. And mm -hmm. when we read the IPCC document about uh, CO2 warming the planet in the in the past, or in the, you know, up till now, in the past uh, hundred years, uh, they, they uh, tell us in the science document, that uh, up until the 70s, the 1970s, we had a lot of warming, but it was all natural. So solar-driven warming, because our CO2 contr con contributions, the concentration was not sufficient to account for a CO2 warming effect. Even, even the IPCC recognizes that, yes, the sun has had great influence on the current warming cycle. And, uh, you know, according to their models, it's only the past uh, few decades where we've seen a CO2 impact. But mm. that's also not all of the warming of the last several decades. It's part of it. So really, yeah. even the models and the modelers and the IPCC science reports uh, hold the sun responsible for most, certainly more than half of the warming we've seen since the Little Ice Ages. Oh, is that right? So more than half. Okay. So then you got one half, less than a half left over, which has to be divided between ocean currents and other drivers. 
and human activity. So human activity then starts to shrink down as a major driver of climate. Right. Uh, if we look at what the modelers present and what the IPCC doctrine is, the last, uh, so shall we say, 40 years, since the 80s, when warming began, we had a cooling period in the 50s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, and it turned around. And then we could say the 80s, 90s, we had a bump. And then we had a bump in the, uh, you know, after 2016, really. And mm -hmm. so we had two major bumps in there, I guess, if we look at uh, the, the satellite records. And in in that period, since, shall we say, since the uh, 70s, the mid-70s or late 70s, um, the IPCC will say that at least over half or most or whatever words they're using now is due to CO2. But that still leaves a margin of that, maybe half, as mm -hmm. their view due to solar. But prior to that, significant warming through the uh, 1900s up till 1950, and then it flattened, uh, all due to uh, solar activity. Huh. Wow. Now, the official UN record says that there's been a 1.2 degree rise since 1880. And a big chunk of that must be solar driven. So what fraction would you think is perhaps human caused of that 1.2? Well, uh, certainly less than 0.6. Maybe, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm going by what I read on, on both sides of the arguments. And I, I don't model this, but it's certainly less than 0.6. So less than half a degree. You know, the Earth's average temperature is about uh, 15 degrees or something like that above zero, changing it by a degree is, you know, some substantial part of that because it's a permanent, if we look at that as a permanent uh, establishment of new established temperature. And so we get impacts in, on permafrost and we there's no doubt permafrost is melting uh, because of that 1.2 degrees. It's amplified in the Arctic. This is a, an amplification up there that, that is uh, real. Uh, because of internal feedbacks, uh, albedo, and, and all the rest up there. So although we can't feel it, that temperature difference, you know, it will have an impact on the planet. And we know uh, this because if we go back uh, 125,000 years, when we were in the previous interglacial period, the temperature was, uh, you know, a, a few degrees warmer than today. That had significant impacts on uh, sea level. And uh, permafrost distribution back then it was much warmer. That last interglacial uh, peaked at much warmer temperatures than we're experiencing on this interglacial, that's for sure. Yeah, for sure. Well, we have to go for a break now. My guest today is Professor Ian Clark. He's Emeritus Professor in the Department of Earth and Environmental Sciences at the University of Ottawa. And Ian, after the break, I'd like to talk to you about the possibility of global cooling due to a grand solar minimum. Can we talk about that? Do my best, sure. Okay, yeah, sure. So we'll be right back after the break. Millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-haul effects of the toxic spike protein. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at the Wellness Company designed their spike support formula to counteract harmful spike protein from COVID-19 and vaccines so you can feel your best. Go to OutloudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Cofix RX Nasal Solution has completed the circle and is now offering throat spray with povidone iodine. That completes the protocol doctors like Peter McCullough recommend. 
If staying healthy is important, you'll want to make sure to add throat spray to your next order of Cofix RX. For a limited time and exclusive for America Out Loud listeners only, you can save 25% off your entire order. Let's double down against colds, flus, strep, RSV, HRV, COVID, and more. Click the banner or go to America Out Loud shop to get 25% off your entire order. Use coupon code OUTLOUD25. That's coupon code OUTLOUD25. This is Jody O'Malley with Nurses Out Loud. Did you know our body is made up of trillions of cells and inside each cell, redox signaling molecules are produced? These molecules hold a sacred place in chemistry because as we age, the vital communication of our immune system becomes less efficient. For the first time ever, ASEA brings you the power of these molecules in a convenient and potent form to provide your body with the essential support it needs to thrive. Ever since I toured their facility, I take two ounces in the morning and evening, and my vitality and energy has been restored at a time I needed it the most. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get your exclusive 15% discount by using the code OUTLOUD. The buildup of spike proteins is dangerous to your health. Global Healing's Foreign Protein Cleanse detoxes your body, removing the spike proteins, allowing your body to repair from within. Formulated by Dr. Edward Group and by Dr. Brian Artis, Foreign Protein Cleanse targets and detoxes spike proteins in the body. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get 15% off using the code OUTLOUD. Global healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. Many voices, one freedom, united in the First Amendment. Our goal is to herald the voice of genuine liberty at AmericaOutloud.news. A place where you'll find the naked truth expressed with a patriotic heart. Now is our time, my fellow Americans. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. I'm back with Professor Ian Clark. He's a emeritus professor in the Department of Earth and Environmental Sciences at the University of Ottawa. He specializes in isotopes and understanding how environmental conditions have changed a long time in the past. Now, one thing we're talking about, Ian, is the business of uh, the Phanerozoic period, the period from 600 million years ago to the present, and how galactic cosmic rays have had a major impact. And before I get on to the future, I just wanted to read you a quote from Wikipedia. And you tell me, what do you think about this? It says, across the Phanerozoic, the dominant driver of long-term climate change was the concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. What do you think about that? <laughs> well, that's a patent misunderstanding, uh, a total uh, deformation of science. It's it just, that's not true. It's patently not true. All the records we have, we were showing huge concentrations of CO2 in the past, 10, 20 times what we have today, and uh, during ice periods. Now, we do see uh, some, you could say, oh, now CO2 is coherent with the temperature record, but we know that as temperature plummets, uh, CO2 plummets as well, because 
uh, A, the oceans are far more soluble, or CO2 is far more soluble in, in the cold oceans, so we sequester a lot of CO2 into the oceans, but also we get the you know burial of, of plant mass and, and you know, the, the, the actual terrestrial surface area that's exchanging carbon with the atmosphere is greatly diminished because of glaciation. So mm-hmm. we've got long-term records at various uh, scales of CO2 and temperature being very coherent. But when we examine it closely, we always see that temperature changes and then CO2 changes. And so mm-hmm. temperature is clearly driving uh, CO2 concentrations. And that's yeah. well in the geological record at all scales. In fact, we see it in the contemporary record in a decadal scale. So to say that CO2 over that period of time, CO2 is driving climate is ludicrous. But we do have very good records over the past hundred years. And uh, several papers have shown that when we look at the uh, incremental increase in, in CO2, which indisputably, I would say, is due to the burning of fossil fuels. We see that from a number of uh, of uh, perspectives. Uh, you know, CO two has been going up over the last uh, 150 years, and uh, and that's largely due to uh, burning fossil fuels, as I say. But there's a huge interannual variability. It goes up about, you know, concentrations go up and then go down, go up and go down seasonally or annually. Yeah. This is due to the earth breathing. And and what when we start to look at the amplitude of those year-to-year changes in CO2 concentration, it's all on an upward curve, but it's like a, it's like a saw's edge on an upward sloping saw. And those uh the teeth of that upward increase uh vary in, in width and, and height, uh, mainly height, the amplitude. And what we see is that it's temperature driving that amplitude. And mm. so we'll get more CO2 when we've had a warmer uh, Earth in the previous, uh, well, close to about 11 months. It's about 11-month lag. And so we see warmer temperatures uh, one year, and then the next year we're going to have a slightly greater increase in CO2. And then it goes back down because in Northern Hemisphere winter, everything shuts down. I'm sorry, in, in Northern Hemisphere summer, um, when thing, uh, sequestration is, is is maximized, and then in the winter, and, and so we get a, a drawdown in the summer because trees are photosynthesizing in the yeah. Northern Hemisphere, huge land masses in the Northern Hemisphere, mainly the boreal forest, and that draws down CO2. And then uh, come the winter, we have respiration going on and ocean exchange, and CO2 levels go back up. And right. so variability between peak to peak, we see driven by temperature, just like huh. we see over the ice ages. And so that's interesting. Even in the short term, then, if one year is particularly warm, the oceans will give out more CO2, and the next year will have a higher peak to that little saw shaped curve. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's which, cool. What's driving a lot of that? Uh, annual or interannual variability is terrestrial carbon exchanges, which are also driven by temperature. Temperature, as you point out, drives ocean solubility of CO2. And so we get the oceans emitting more when it's warmer. The terrestrial landscapes emit and sequester 
carbon according to temperature. So if we have a warmer uh, season, growing season, we see uh, more uh, CO2 being uh, emitted from, from soils. Right. Okay. Now, looking to the future, some of this discussion sounds interesting for the past, especially long-term past. But looking to the future, one of the things that concerns me is the possibility of global cooling because the sun is entering into a grand solar minimum around 2060. I've been following the work of Habibilo Abdusamitov from the Polkovo Observatory near St. Petersburg in Russia. And he shows that we're headed to a period around 2060 when all those different cycles of the sun, the 11-year cycle and the longer ones up to 250 years, that they all hit rock bottom around the same time. And he's forecasting that we will slide into a colder period at that point, similar to when the Thames River in London froze a meter thick during the Little Ice Age. Do you think that's a possibility that we could be going into global cooling? Absolutely. Uh, and, and what we know is that solar activity has, is a great driver of climate and uh, our understanding of the variability of solar activity is pretty good now. And as you point out in uh, in that uh, reference, when, when we can predict, because we can predict with many of these solar cycles, we see things declining in terms of solar activity and, and the IPC themselves, IPCC themselves acknowledge that you know, we've had a lot of warming over the past 150 years because of solar activity increasing. So if it's going to decrease, then everybody has to recognize that this is going to be uh, potentially catastrophic for yeah. an Earth with the population that we have now. Yeah, yeah. You'd, you'd laugh when I was testifying before the City of Ottawa Environment and Climate Change Committee. I said that, you know, the city of Ottawa is only planning for warming in their adaptation part of their climate plan. They're only planning for warming. There's nothing in there about cooling. And yet, surely cooling for a northern latitude city is a lot more, <laughs> a high latitude city is a lot more dangerous. Right. At least we'll be able to skate on the canal more regularly, I suppose. <laughs> well, you ah. know, I said I said to them, for Ottawa to only plan for warming is like going on a camping trip into an area that's known to be infested with black flies and black bears and only planning for the black flies. Because, <laughs> because while heating can be, you know, a nuisance, generally speaking, healthy people don't die when it gets a bit hot, but everyone can die when it's minus 40 if you have no heat. And so by, you know, only planning for the black or the mosquitoes and or the black flies, not the black bears. I mean, black bears can kill you, you know. And uh, I mean, do you think that's a reasonable analogy? It's a great <laughs> analogy. I love it. Uh, mm -hmm. I'll start using it, Tom. Thank you. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's very real. And, and history tells us that when the, when the climate deteriorates, and, and it's interesting that we use that word in paleoclimatology, we talk about a deteriorating climate doesn't mean that just that it's getting bad. It means specifically it's getting cold. Ah. And so the association with cold and deterioration tells us, you know, what that means to us. And so uh, a colder climate is a bad climate. We don't want that. Agriculture flourishes. The more rain, the more warmth, the longer the summers, the longer the growing season. These are all very positive. Now, we can mitigate to a certain extent with, with our technologies and better grains and, and, and 
uh, agricultural uh, additive, you know, the fertilizers and things. But uh, any way you cut it, uh, a warmer climate is better for humanity. Yeah. And yet the city of Ottawa, you know, they say, oh, the average temperature for Ottawa is rising. And I, I said to the, the council, I said, yeah, that's not because the maximum temperature in the daytime is rising. It's because it's getting a little less cool at night. So the average is rising. <laughs> so, I mean, all this fixation on warming, I mean, surely you know, much more people die from cooling than warming, surely. Uh, all the statistics that I've seen absolutely support that. It's 10 to 1. Yeah, yeah. So can you tell us, has their research stood the test of time, in your opinion? Uh, what what Yan and, and Nir Shaviv put together is is tr as true today as it was 20 years ago. And uh, it's a remarkable bit of, piece of work and has only been vindicated by further work by Svensmark, taking it down to, you know, decadal to uh, millennial scales, and it remains true. So it, it's vital work. I'll say that it's been overlooked because the uh, the whole conversation has been taken over by climate alarmists and uh, and scientists, and they'll it, it doesn't fit their dialogue, it doesn't fit their uh, story, and so they discount it, uh, you know, in the past, I've seen attacks on it. Now it's just largely uh, marginalized. But it, <clears throat> you know, I always featured in my course. I talk about it as much as I can. But people will read what they want to read. And if it doesn't mm -hmm. their uh, perspective, then uh, it'll get ignored. So when I'm testifying next before the Environment Committee, it would be valid to still bring it up. Absolutely. There's been yeah. no chance to disprove it. Yeah, excellent. Now, there's a film put out in 2019, a documentary by filmmaker Matthew Embry that you appeared in. Very good film called Global Warning. And I want to read to you a few quotes that you had in that film and hear your comments. You said, first of all, a warming world is not a smoking gun for a CO2 catastrophe. What do you mean by that? Well, uh, we're faced with this, this uh, situation where CO2 has been rising for the past 150 years during the, uh, you know, since industrialization, and temperature has been going up too. And as far as I can tell, that's as good as the science gets for demonstrating, you know, to those who want to hear it, that CO2 is driving climate, that the two have gone up. And, I, you know, it's undeniable. We've got very good records of both. It's warmer, and we have more CO2 in the atmosphere. And so, that is, uh, what, you know, in some people's eyes, a smoking gun. So that's, you know, we're guilty. Our CO2 has warmed the climate. I point out that there's lots of reasons why the, the, we have a warmer world, and, uh, and it's not necessarily CO2. Now, CO2 is a greenhouse gas. We can attribute a, a fraction of that warming to CO2, whether it's measurable um, whether it's significant, these are questions. But, you know, CO2 is a greenhouse gas. The more we add, the less effective it is because we're saturating the very narrow wavelengths. The bandwidth of CO2 is very narrow. And once you get to, you know, once you've fully saturated it, you're not absorbing any more outgoing long wave radiation because all those waves are saturated are absorbed by CO2. So the rest will just keep going out. And so we, uh, 
you know, we've got this situation where uh, CO2 is going up, but it, it's, it's not a very effective greenhouse gas, really not a smoking gun. Yeah, for sure. Now, you also said that um, you said that the idea of consensus in science is silly. Why is that? <laughs> well, science, it's, it, you know, it's its not friendvoling. We get a consensus when somebody's got an idea, we all talk about it, then somebody says, well, I think we should do this. And everybody, oh, well, okay. And we all put up our hand. We've got a consensus. Yeah. Go to a movie tonight, you know, all of our friends. That's a consensus. It doesn't mean that everybody wanted to go to the movie. Maybe, it, you know, <laughs> other people had other ideas, but they're going to go along with it because we're all buddies. Let's do it. We've got a consensus. Okay, or we're going to move forward on some other agenda item at a board meeting or something like that. Science doesn't work that way. Science makes its best leaps forward when people think outside of the box and contrary to, to regular thinking, you know, box thinking. And so we can't, you know, science is not consensus driven. We, we can't wait for consensus. Everybody's on board. Yeah, we all agree to this. The earth is flat. So everybody out, yeah, we're all good with that. Yeah, yeah must must be true. <laughs> must be true. And then somebody yeah. says, no, 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 the mass of the boats, they disappear last when a ship sails over the horizon. There's a curvature there, man. we got to look at it. So, you know, we we move forward that way. We have to yeah. think with, with, with new eyes, new perspective on things. Yeah, it's interesting. Einstein, when he was told that there was a hundred scientists who signed a document disagreeing with his theory of relativity, he said, "Why one hundred? One would be enough if I was wrong." <laughs> Which I thought was quite cute. Einstein's my hero. I got his books all up there. <laughs> yeah. 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 Now, to, to end off here, I think it's an important thing to bring up, and I'm going to include the link to your 2021 article in Canada's National Post. It was called Net Zero Won't Cure the Climate, but it may kill Canada. Now, why would it be so bad for Canada for I, us to try to get to net zero? Well, A, we won't. Uh, because we can't, because we need energy. We're a, we're a, a Nordic country, and, and it's cold in the winter. We have to plow streets, we drive our cars, and uh, we can't produce much what we call green energy with solar and, and wind because they're inter intermittent. So we can't get there. But um, in trying to get there, we're going to kill, you could say it would kill the goose that lays the golden egg. The golden egg is our hydrocarbon are our, our wealth of natural resources. And while we're still going to use those natural resources, they won't be ours because we're not investing in them. We're cutting, we're stopping pipelines, we're stopping uh, petroleum uh, projects uh, in, in the oil, in the oil sands, uh, all our unconventional resources, people are fighting them and they could protest them because they're allowed to in a Western democracy. And so they turn their population against them. But we still need them and we're still going to need them in 2050 because we cannot get there. You, you, I've looked at the numbers. I printed, presented the numbers easily assembled. They're on the web, you, you know, come up with our energy usage and, and the likelihood of converting everything to electrical is is beyond ludicrous we, mm -hmm. but what we will do is kill our economy because we're going to start importing more oil from venezuela more oil from nigeria more oil from russia yet we could be exporting our natural gas uh you know lng we're, we're, the liberals aren't 
uh, allowing this to go forward like like we we want, like we could. We could be helping solve Germany's gas problem. But uh, and, and this is all economic uh, benefits to Canada. And it's improving the climate narrative because natural gas is so much better than, say, coal. Mm -hmm. If people want to get off coal, they should go to natural gas. And you get twice the bang for your buck. Yeah. And, uh, so, so if you're actually producing oil in Canada, which has high environmental standards, high human rights standards, surely that is a much better thing for a social justice warrior than producing the same oil in Russia or Venezuela. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't mm -hmm. agree more. But uh, our eco-terrorists just don't see it that way. They you mm -hmm. know, block every pipeline. They got to block every initiative <clears throat> and, uh, and, and, and get us off of using natural gas to heat our houses. Uh, we all have to buy heat pumps made elsewhere. And uh, I have nothing against heat pumps. Don't get me wrong. It, 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 yeah, it, but it's, they're it's, not so good at minus 40. <laughs> do, do the numbers. Gas and heat pumps together may be a very good combination. But uh, let's be realistic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So looking to the future, what are your next research projects? We have another couple of minutes. Well, uh, I'm big on nuclear, which if you read uh, that that, ar that article, uh, I, I point out that the only way we can get big electricity over the next decades is really with nuclear because our other uh, technologies, hydro and everything, are, are tapped out. Uh, and and uh, a lot of research I'm doing now is to help find ways to best manage nuclear waste. And we oh. have all sorts of great solutions because there's good science behind it. Well-funded science, not just my science, but many colleagues, other people who have been looking at solutions to nuclear waste. So we feel that uh, this just has to be translated now into the public forum so that people understand there's nothing to fear. We can bury nuclear waste. It's no big issue. Let's move on. It's a very exceptionally safe form of energy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I'd love to have you back to talk specifically about that. Would you come back for another interview about nuclear waste? Because I think that's a very important topic. I'm uh, I'm I'm full in on nuclear, so I, I'd I'd, uh, I'd love to come back. I'd be most honest. yeah yeah that that would be fun because I understand that if you put uh, radioactive waste deep in the Canadian Shield, and the Shield hasn't moved for tens of millions of years, that's a very safe way to dispose of it. Would I be right? Well, that's correct. Uh, we have to remember, and, and what uh, opponents will point out, is that the uh, Canadian Shield is a very brittle rock, and it cracks, and so there's faults and, and joints and fractures, and groundwater moves through it. I was uh, you know, visiting my son. He's got a well that goes down into the Canadian Shield. Delicious water. I've dated it. It's you know, a few decades old. So water actually moves through that rock. So our challenge is to find zones within those rock masses. If, if we opt for a site in the Canadian Shield or in a, any kind of a crystalline shield terrain like that, which is relatively unfractured and has old water that's been there a long period of time. Uh, the shield's not going anywhere, but if you have, if, if it's a wash with water moving through fractures and faults, then you know, you're gonna be concerned. But we have good technologies uh, and, and testing uh, methods to, to say, yeah, this, this is a good site. There's very little water and very little uh, young water or no young water. It's all very, very old water. 
in sedimentary rocks, the same ones that Yan was digging his fossils out of to create the Phanerozoic climate record, when we go into those sedimentary rocks, we find zones where the pore waters uh, are, you know, 400 million years old. Wow. So it's been moving at those depths for hundreds of millions of years. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that'll be a great topic for our next interview, perhaps in a few months. I'd love to have you back. So my guest today has been Dr. Ian Clark, Emeritus Professor in the Department of Earth and Environmental Sciences at Ottawa U. And we've been talking about everything from a long time frame perspective to short time frame perspective. And it's really introduced a great topic for our next interview. So thanks so much for being my guest today, Ian. My pleasure, Tom. Thanks for having me on and congratulations for this show. I think it's great. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of people are going to enjoy this and share it broadly. So this is Tom Harris and my guest Ian Clark signing out from the other side of the story. If you're enjoying this episode, we ask that you donate to the International Climate Science Coalition or ICSC at icsc-climate.com to help us pay for the show. We get about 50,000 listeners per program, so it's certainly worth continuing. Please visit icsc-climate.com and click on the red donate button in the upper right hand corner of the homepage. Once again, that's icsc-climate.com. Help us bring our program, the other side of the story, to thousands more. <laughs>